Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. Uh, this is a AppGate-sponsored podcast, and if you would like to learn more about AppGate's Zero Trust solution, just head on over to AppGate.com and you can find all the uh, information pertaining to that. Today, we are going to be talking about how can we go any faster and how does Zero Trust relate to cloudy K8s in the DevOps world that many organizations and, and federal governments are finding themselves in today. Uh, in order to help guide that conversation and then really shed a lot of insights, I'm joined by Kurt Glazemaker, who's our Chief Technology Officer over here at AppGate. Kurt is a, a seasoned technology leader with more than two decades experience in security, networking, cloud, and virtualization. Uh, he's renowned for his extensive knowledge of agile software development, so very timely for this conversation, especially with uh, you know software-defined network and cloud uh, prior to joining AppGate, he did serve as the CTO at Cloud Founders, uh, which basically helps develop advanced private cloud technologies, uh, and also served as Terramark CTO over in Europe, where he was re responsible for the development of the enterprise cloud infrastructure as a service offering. Kurt, can you uh, say hello so the audience knows that you're here in human? Hello. Thanks, George, for the introduction. Uh, and that is actually correct. Uh, that's my bio. There you go. I got one thing right. Let's see if we can keep this rolling. So we're also here joined with Aaron Palermo. Uh, Aaron has, has, has done this before with us. So welcome back, Aaron. He's a senior solutions architect, uh, specifically helping federal organizations with their zero trust journeys. He's, over, he's got over 20 years of experience in IT, 10 years in security and automation. Um, and as we previously mentioned last time, he's a uh, contributor to the Cloud Security Alliance SDP uh, version 2.0 architecture guide. So, Aaron, welcome back. Let's uh, let's say hello to the audience so we know you're here. Thank you. Also here, also not a robot. Not a robot. Good to know. All right. Was as Aaron knows, and as we have given Kurt pre-warning, uh, we do like to do an icebreaker that basically is a little bit of fun that we have before we get into the topic at hand. It's called "What's Bugging You." Very straightforward. Kurt, let's go ahead and start with you. What's bugging you today? Well, what's bugging me today is that last week we had our first trade show. Um, in uh, in London, uh, two years after COVID strike, and the first day I enter, uh, there's a tube strike, so I had to walk like eight miles, and I still feel it today. So, so that has been uh, the very first fun experience, um, walking like two hours in pouring rain with your luggage uh, all the way down to your first conference for two years. So, well, and that was at the Excel too, and if anybody's ever been to the Excel. Even without a uh, a strike of the tube, it's not that easy to get to it. Yes, so I, yes. I'm sorry to hear that. You got your steps in though. Absolutely. So you you got your exercise. I beat my record last week. No worries. <laughs> Aaron, how about you? What's bugging you? You know, COVID in general just making it hard to, you know, COVID's not respecting my vacation schedule. I think that's <laughs> what it comes down to. You know, postponing trips, postponing family reunions. It's getting old. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Well, let's uh, let's dive into the topic at hand then. So like I mentioned previously, right, we're going to be really getting specific around DevOps containers and cloud. Obviously, when we talk DevOps, it is not uh, – what am I trying to say here? Containers and DevOps are not mutually exclusive, but chances are high that if you were adopting agile DevOps mentalities, the adoption of containers is, is, is going to be very – close to uh, that type of initiative. And so we've kind of buckled those logically together. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's the same song that we've all gotten accustomed to, right? 
the speed of business, digital transformation from the IT uh, side of the equation is really outpacing traditional network security improvements. Um, you know, now we have cloud native containerized workloads taking the DevOps center stage. And, you know, as we're delivering innovation, what are the costs, what are the vulnerabilities and the risks at hand? There was a survey conducted by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation that says 96% of respondents reported using or evaluating Kubernetes. All right. So the adoption is is, is significantly high there. 5.6 million developers uh, using Kubernetes represented a 67% increase year over year. So you can see the exponential growth there. Um, And 94% of respondents in in a recent state of Kubernetes security report experienced at at least one security incident in their Kubernetes environment in the last 12 months. And that's one incident that they obviously were aware of. So the idea of having built-in security concepts, um, most cloud environments, you know, offer today, they'll only go so far. There's no interoperability between different cloud vendor security groups or different Kubernetes clusters. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try to identify some of the security capabilities that help address, you know, securely deploying applications in, order, in, in an automated way for dynamic cloud work environments. Uh, not just focusing on user to resource type access, obviously zero trust has a big play in that, but also the interconnection between resources and services as you're building out those architectures. And then obviously the the automation, the speed of delivery and how security can kind of keep pace with that. So first, before we do anything, before we talk about zero trust as a potential solution for this, let's start off by really focusing on what these challenges are. Um, and Kurt, obviously you've got a very unique perspective on this in that not only you know, are you a, an evangelist for zero trust, but you are actively working DevOps day in and day out with your engineering team. Um, so again, according to the same uh, CNCF cloud native survey, 42% of organizations run over 250 containers. And a separate survey also indicated that 55% of DevOps teams have had a delay deploying applications due to security concerns. So that was a lot, a lot of data kind of spit out there. Kurt, very simple question for you. What are the security challenges that organizations are facing as they're adopting CICD? Yeah, there are, there are a couple of, of things. I think let, let's start with the first, the highest level uh, in this case, that the cloud Kubernetes environment is a completely different way to approach things. And they're running like, like not on the virtualization layer, but even like on a container basis, like carving out on a, on, on a higher level than, than just typical virtualization where you also hand over the operating systems, which means that it's very hard to fit in traditional legacy security methods, right? Implementing a firewall appliance, implementing an agent, uh, implementing uh, rule sets based on, on IP addresses, all of these things start to becoming very, very unusable in, in a cloud native environment. And that's that's typically the biggest challenge that I see here is that the world in, in, in containers and Kubernetes is so fundamentally different from some of these aspects that traditional security teams and CISORs are scratching their heads and how can we actually secure those things securely? I have all these tools on my shelf and I have a, a very big suite of tools that I can throw at it, but none of them work. So um, so that's, I think, the very first part of it. Uh, that, that's that's a, a big challenge. The second part of the challenge, I think, is also is that the amount of time from development going to testing, going to production is so much faster than in, in a traditional way of developing, right? So you cannot just put development effort on, a, on an aspect of it and then secure it down and then do the whole exercise all over again when it moves to production and it's been handled by another team. 
you're actually need, are almost enforced to do it by design when you start the development process. And I think those are the two most fundamental challenges I think um, enterprises struggle when they actually move from the traditional way of development into like a full CI, CD, Kubernetes type of style in this case. So, yeah. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I see with it, the CI/CD pipeline with DevOps, a lot of it is more based around services, microservices, and really a focus on metadata. You know, you don't really care where your IP addresses are, and even ephemeral ports are used for ingesting the container. Whereas the external, the public facing or the user facing part of that is the load balancer. And you know, in the past, I've done quite a bit of networking. I've been involved in some IPv6 exploration, I see a lot of overlap between the difficulties of adopting IPv6, where you really need a lot of metadata or DNS because you can't manage IP addresses and containers. And, you know, I haven't really fully fleshed that out, but, you know, there is definitely overlap where you need metadata, you need DNS, you need a service mesh or something like that, because as soon as you start trying to manage IP v6 addresses in the legacy world where you start trying to manage IPv4 addresses and ports in a containerized world, uh, if you're managing at the IP level, you're probably doing it wrong. It's horribly inefficient. You know, the ephemeral nature of microservices and metadata, those can remain static while the IPs and ports change. So going forward, the service mesh and micro-segmentation APIs that other vendors offer really allow discovery of the underlying IP addresses and ports so that people don't have to manage those. People don't have to know about those. Those can be automatically discovered. So, Kurt, I'm going to lead the witness here a little bit because I know you have a stance on this. But obviously, you know, when you're thinking about large-scale organizations, they might have a Kubernetes cluster living in one particular environment, be it AWS, different regions. You might have traditional on-premise, right, legacy infrastructure as well. How does the heterogeneous nature of all of this further complicate uh, securing as well as as even just operating in those environments? So from a development perspective, um, the challenge here is the the fact that, as uh, Arne was saying, you cannot actually manage those IP addresses. So basically, uh, we have a very high-level skill set of um, uh, advanced containerized environment that needs to talk to the legacy world, that's almost inevitable that you need to open up the whole network to do that because you have ephemeral ports and, and IP addresses on, on the left side. You have some static addresses typically on, on the legacy side. And that makes it particularly challenging um, to, to address those, right? So you need to rethink a fundamental way to address those. And that's where... Um, some of these aspects that you were, Aaron was saying, like the metadata around the application when you deploy them, today you actually lose the whole context as soon as you leave your Kubernetes cluster. And even if you use multiple different Kubernetes clusters or different cloud technologies in this case, you're still having an issue with um, I, dealing with, with the same metadata because they're not glued together. They're actually all small islands. So one of the biggest challenges that, that you need to address is how can I use that metadata and actually use that to actually glue things together outside the same cluster. I think that's, that's one of the key invention I think that Zero Trust will bring yeah. and that we can help solve with addition to security as, as well. Yeah. So what, what then, with all of those challenges at hand, where, where, are the, where are the biggest risks 
right? Like how, if you're looking at this from a risk management exercise, what, what would keep you up at night, Kurt, you know, as you're overseeing an engineering team, what makes you most weary and concerned? Well, the biggest risk that you have is if you are starting to do wide open network almost because you don't know which IP there's it's going to be, whatever, um, a development container versus a production container. Uh, it's very hard to distinguish those things. A, a compromised container could lead into breaches and lateral movements um, across your whole environment. And uh, if you really want to lock them down, you need to do a few things, right? Also think about practical aspects that today, if you have a network stack that is common for all your containers and you need to do some management on it, it actually could affect your whole uh, traffic. If you think about metadata and security and you can actually tweak a single container, you will see if it works, which is also a typical DevOps uh, method. Try to see if it works with a single workload. If that is adopting fine, you can actually address the same configuration to all of your workloads. That, that's a much better way and safer way. So, so those aspects are completely gone um, uh, in, in a traditional network because they don't exist, right? You need to predefine your ACL sets. They're typically IP managed, maybe a little bit of application knowledge, but all of these requests are HTTP anyway, so it doesn't next even next gen firewall doesn't solve that that amount. So you need to really think about fundamentally differently making part of the metadata deployment model that you have in Kubernetes and actually make it part of your, your security stack. And that will solve a lot of these issues for you. Yeah. Aaron, do you agree with that? Is there anything else that you think about from a risk standpoint? Well, I think one of the things that Kurt mentioned that I definitely want to hone in on is context. And you know, you, you lose a lot of context as soon as you egress the cluster or egress an API environment. And if you, you know, developers are looking and coding at the API metadata level, but the security tools operate at the IP import level, there's a fundamental mismatch there, and that's a problem. And the development and security needs more overlap in vocabulary or nomenclature or context in order to maintain the velocity. We don't want to slow down the development, but we also want to maintain application security. So I think that context that Kurt mentioned is going to be that shared nomenclature, and how do we, how do we get that back? with either existing tools or new tools. And as far as the risk, primarily integrating with external APIs. So say we have you know, Kubernetes workloads, we're integrating with a vendor API or we're integrating with a, somebody else in their Kubernetes cluster. That context is inherently gone as soon as we leave. How do we rebuild that? How do we establish a connection between those clusters to rebuild that context? That makes sense. So then taking the taking the technology out of it for a little bit, right? You think about DevOps. Um, this isn't news to every, anybody, but there's the, the the people side of the equation, the culture shock and adjustment of moving fast in a DevOps fashion and being struck with what I'm hearing is basically you leave it wide open and you give the developers what they need. There's a, an inherent risk there, but there's speed and innovation Kurt, how have you kind of navigated those waters around just a mindset change? Well, in the end, it's, it's always easier. Developers are always lazy. So uh, if you can make their life easier, they actually will adapt to it, even if it's a more secure way. So automation is the key here. And um, if yeah. you can actually drive metadata automatically to policies, um, that is a big driver for this. Uh, I a developer always needs to feel there is no policy or no restrictions, um, but it's a process that takes care of it, and that really helps innovation and, and speed, right? So that, that's kind of the, the base tagline. If a developer can actually run something 
in the background and just automatically deploy the right security posture and whatever, he will not matter. He will not worry about any security, but he also will not uh, uh, put uh, or, or worry about process or whatever. It's all taking care of it, right? That, that, that's a big step. And I think what Zero Trust does, and if you think about it, um, when the Zero Trust starts about taking, even when it's originally come over from user land where it actually started, where a user and a device is actually context, right? Is, is, a, is a device, uh, say, uh, what kind of parameters from the device can I collect? What type of parameters from my identity provider I can collect? And use those to fit naturally policies and, and glue those together in Zero Trust. I think that approach is actually an extension naturally that works in the DevOps world as well. If I can actually run something on a security level that's automatically kicks in on as a sidecar, for example, next to the container, take a look at what metadata and what contents am I running this container right now is the production environment, the dev environment, take it automatically with them and automatically I reach out to the, the APIs that Aaron was referring to or other Kubernetes cluster and take that context with you and only access the right elements and only that container can access the, that right elements. That is part of automation. It's part of design, but depending on the metadata, it automatically adapts to all the different stages from dev test to, to production, for example. But it also helps in, in the laziness and the automation of developers. Uh, and, and they really like that because that's the way um, right, they will just like to build, throw it out and see if it works. And uh, if it works, they just multiply um, uh, the effort or Put it, push it forward down to the CI/CD pipeline, and um, it's it's always good to fail fast. But also from a security perspective, it's also good to incorporate that that method uh, very similar. So if the security context is wrong, you can actually not run, or you will fail already in test. If it runs in QA with a different metadata, you will actually have those things without touching the code. So that that also helps in in pushing that pipeline uh, much quicker through. Uh, through uh, the CI/CD pipeline, with all the security aspects in each state uh, in mind, in this case. Aaron, what do, what do you think in terms of you know zero trust being applied to these DevOps environments? Is 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 there anything you would add to what Kurt just outlined there? Well, I would say developers are efficient, not lazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's big. and you know, and I love the diplomacy there. Good job. Yeah, and you know, with automation, if you can add another couple of lines of JSON and then comply with policy that makes it very, very easy to automate. It's not somebody getting in the way. It's, you know, add three lines of code and you're done and you can automate that from then on. And, you know, the zero trust is also metadata driven and recognizes that IP is important or not something you configure in ACL. On my end, I'm not a developer, so that's why I cannot say the developers are lazy. I say they're efficient. But it really is a, the API integration that we have that exists with tools in the market. So you, there's micro-segmentation APIs with certain products. There's uh, service mesh APIs with certain products. And it really makes it easy to uh, rediscover that context and dynamically discover those IPs and ports. So at the end of the day, you know, I'll put on my networking hat. Networking does come down to IPs and ports, but adding the context back in and dynamically discovering those at runtime uh, definitely allows the security admins to add in that security layer back into the CICD pipeline, which is extraordinarily valuable. And so I was going to ask that, right? I mean, you guys are focusing a lot on the end user of the developer. Sorry, Kurt, you're about to jump in uh, there. One, one thing I want to add is, and this is actually a very good point that Aaron brings up on the security admins. Um, this is where it becomes interesting because if you literally take zero trust as policy and metadata driven, 
you can actually define policies at a much higher level, uh, level, right? You can say, hey, this person can talk to only production data if it's production tagged or whatever. And then the security admins take control of those high-level policies. And the only thing that the developers need to do in this case is to just to make sure that it picks up the right metadata. And then you you have a you still have like a proper security team that takes care of policies, but in such a high level that it gives all the flexibility for your developers to uh, to still be agile and to move fast forward in these chains, right? So that that actually is a very good uh, combination because if you would have the security team to deal with IP address and ACLs. It just, I, first of all, most of the developers don't know what it is, an IP address uh, in some cases. But the next step is you don't, even if you would know what an IP address is, you don't know what it's going to be because it's ephemeral. So so all of those things right. now become metadata driven. And then you can really make, still have proper security policies uh, controlled around that. And uh, and the, the problem comes with great auto logs. So you still have every proof of what happened in, in the field. But you still have all the flexibility from your developer's perspective um, to um, to just deploy and, and actually use the chain in this case with minimal effort and code. Have you had instances where a developer has kind of called BS on this and said, yeah, this sounds too good to be true. It's not going to be the case. And they've actually changed their perspective by working in the, in the environment and seeing how you know zero trust policies help improve their productivity? Well, I, I'm in a very luxury position in this case, and I would say we actually use zero trust to access the source code ourselves. So, uh, so people experience our developers they've experienced it every day, and they use the latest version of the product. So, if they do things wrong, they actually will suffer from from it themselves, and that really helps in in getting that first feedback. Right? It's it's not bad to have like um, uh, a, a developer uh, touching its own code in this case. As long as the loopbacks are very short and and and, uh, and and immediate, right? So, in this case, if you if you run or you make changes to the code, first of all, you go to a series of automated tests, which is also part of the CI/CD pipeline. You test those connectivity parts. If that works, it becomes part of your um, uh, testing and production environment before you merge. And then you also have more like an exploratory feedback uh, on it. maybe it's, it works all fine, but suddenly you feel like it's slower because. Uh, my my uh, source code suddenly takes like four times more to uh, to sync than it was before. So that instant feedback is very very positive um, and 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 really speed up your your velocity. And uh, if you actually make those tools uh, available to developers without having to be uh, in the way, it's not basically slowing them down. It's actually part of the process, as I was mentioning early. That combination yeah. is really really powerful, and it. In the beginning, you, you always say, hey, um, we don't have any process here. But if you look what we automate and what you you, you see here, there's actually a lot of things that catch. And that's actually a very good combination. People, If developers don't think there's a real process, while the toolset and the automation process actually is completed the entire uh, process chain, that really drives your velocity. Because first of all, developers feel very confident to push new code because they know if it's not working, it will be catched in these early cycles. And if it's kind of working, we probably notice it ourselves, and and it will be one of your colleagues that that will be mugging about it if, if it's a little bit slower, but it it passed all the checks, all the basic checks in this case. Um, so in the beginning they're skeptical, but I think once they see it, uh, they they actually are loving it because it it gives them a lot of freedom. And I think if you give people, the developers trust to make change in the code and to actually uh, make them confident that they cannot blow things up or, or, or things go sideways, 
that is where real innovation comes from because people are much more willing to make changes. They are willing to make the changes faster. And that's really where, and you, you don't block anyone else because it's actually uh, catched in, in a very early stage. Those are the three mechanisms that drive velocity and, and agility in your team. And, and those are very, very important. Uh, if you have those three under control, you will be um, uh, moving so much more faster than in any traditional way of, of dealing with development cycles. Well, and you said it, you said it before, and I'll, I just want to reinforce it. Right, is that this is when we think about zero trust and zero trust access applied to these, you know, hyper complex environments, um, fast paced moving. It's not a silver bullet. It doesn't it doesn't take away from a lot of the other sec components of DevSecOps that need to be accounted for. Right, code analysis, you know, vulnerability searching, from, from those kinds of things. Um, I just want to make sure that we're we're being clear here that zero trust is not the the be all end all for 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 all things DevSecOps. There's still very much those um, other security components that need to be taken into into consideration. What about? I mean, this is top of mind because it came out of last year. But things like Log4j. I think Aaron, you were touching us a little bit when you were thinking about like third parties and the role they play in the pipeline. How how does a zero trust access solution help mitigating the risks of there's two really i see two variations of third party there's third party users but then there's like actually third party components that you're bootstrapping into your uh application itself i think that authentication authorization between one api and another one service and another or microservice and another that adds back that context because if i'm service one and i'm reaching out to service two no matter where that lives, if I authenticate to what something service two considers authoritative, be it Active Directory or LDAP or SAML, then I'm adding back in that context. So along yeah. with my connection, I'm adding an identity. That's a non-person identity, obviously, a service account, but I'm, I'm adding that context back in. And I'm allowing service two to make their security policy decisions based on that additional context and not just the source IP address. Yeah, on top of that, I think also what helps is if you have a service that can only talk to the AD or the only certain service and really lock down because it's part of the policy in this case, to not go out and reach to the internet, it also solves a lot of those things where you have a callback method or whatever. So it's really about controlling uh, individual access of a, of a container, right? And if you have a few containers that need internet access and a few that doesn't, it's actually not that easy to set up in, in some of these clusters because uh, egress access is, is, is sometimes open or not. And if you only need one part of egress access, which is a, an external on-prem resource versus the other one needs an internet, that's really where the context and all those automatic glue will really help you in, in locking down and in making sure that you uh, are safe for some of these, these, even for the builders that always exist in, or the potential is always there in, in using third-party uh, libraries in this case. So you guys are the experts, not me. Um, what are we leaving on the table here? What, what else would be valuable for the audience to hear in the context of zero trust, cloud containers, and DevOps? Is, is there anything we haven't touched on you can, you can think of or any final thoughts that you think would be valuable? I would say API integration. I've seen a lot of APIs that can be called as sources of information, but I'm seeing more and more APIs that can be called to affect changes or that can make outbound calls. So one of the big examples is uh, micro, micro segmentation or, or service mesh 
APIs, they know when a change happens. So mm-hmm. I don't want to call a microset a microservice, or sorry, a service mesh API or micro segmentation API, you know, every five seconds to see if there's a change. I would I think it's much more efficient for that API to make an inbound call to me to tell me when there is a change and trigger a change on my end. So, you know, call it a bidirectional API or an outbound and inbound data source data sync. I think that's going to be invaluable going forward as we really, really need to get the people out of the way and write those policies based on metadata, write the policies, and then have those automatically enforced. Yeah, and I would take the approach in this a little bit more high level. And I referring back to the initial part of the, uh, at the beginning of the conversation is that if you are a company that is in transformation of going from legacies and, and traditional security into DevOps, um, you always get conflicts because you will have a resistance from the security team because they, they don't feel safe anymore. The developers feel otherwise too restricted. So I think if you're hitting that kind of uh, friction in, inside your environment, I think it's really time to, to consider their trust approach because I think it actually can solve both roles and actually satisfy both parts of the organization. And and it's quite new. I think this is a new area. Also, if you're starting to have going from one cloud vendor to multi-cloud vendors and you lose that metadata, that's, those are really, I think, key points where I would say it's take it as a give us a takeaway, really take a look at the zero trust mechanisms and uh, and see how they can solve the problem. I think they will both satisfy your security team, but they will also very please your developers because they feel like they have more capabilities and more freedom to uh, to be on the innovative side in this case. Well, and, and, and you said it earlier too, right? It's not just, you know, just buy a tool and throw it into the mix. It's evaluating what your CICD process actually looks like and figuring out how you infuse zero trust policies within that. Absolutely. Thank you both. What we do like to do before we kind of wrap up these podcasts is have a little bit of fun at the end here and we kind of just play a a rapid fire game where we ask you some questions that are not cybersecurity related at all. The whole objective is to get uh, a sense of, of, of who Kurt is and who Aaron is outside of experts in cloud and containers and DevOps. So what I'll do is I'll ask three questions. You can each answer it. What celebrity do you do most people say you look like? Kurt, let's start with you. Who do you look like? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I actually never thought about that one. Uh, I'm going to say Tom Cruise. Oh, Take the glasses off. Yeah, maybe if I put my glasses off. Uh, yeah, it could be. It's not a, not a bad there thing. You go. Yeah. I think you're a bit taller. <laughs> Aaron, how about you? What I got to see <laughs> when I was a little bit younger was Troy Aikman. I can see that. I can see that. All right, question number two. If you could instantly learn any language, what would you choose? Kurt? Um. Let me think about it. Um, I already need to speak quite a few languages these days, but I would go for Spanish because I have a lot of Spanish people in my own team and I definitely could use that for sure. Absolutely. There you go. Pra- that's a very pragmatic answer. Aaron, so, how about you? I was going to say Go because I'm pretty good at Python, but I've not built much with Go at all. <laughs> Who's the developer here? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, what is a current trend that you just don't understand? I'm going to say TikTok for me. 
if I can't answer for myself. I think it's uh, skinny jeans for guys and the high-rise jeans for girls. And I'm pretty sure that statement is just because of my, uh, say, low birth year, which indicates that I no longer really appreciate fashion. There you go. Kurt, yeah. how about you? From my side, um, yeah, I think it's there's a lot of things you don't understand these days. So I can definitely see uh, social media or TikTok uh, aspects uh that you see actually that's losing quite traction. Even you think you're young, you do lose uh, immediately traction with the youth uh, if you if you're not on those things for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's and that's that, that's a very diplomatic way of saying it. Uh, elements of TikTok and social media, not 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 the whole kit and caboodle, yes. but component of it and how it's being used. All right, guys. Hey, listen, thank you so very much. I appreciate um, your time today as well as your insights. And uh, for the audience, thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find show notes and, uh, and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast. If you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is a production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and the guests and may not represent the views of their organization. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. That's a wrap, guys. What'd you think? Good? All right.